Without further ado, let me bring out Morgan Rhodes, our, our moderator, <laughs> Director Ted Witcher. <laughs> and Melody Sutton, who is a music coordinator in the film. And so I hope you guys enjoy this. This is going to be a wonderful conversation, again, about the movie Love Jones, about the work of Pilar McCurry, and thank you all so much for coming out. All right, how many people out there have seen Love Jones? All right, it is a great honor for me to be here. I was telling Ted uh, earlier what Love Jones meant to me uh, as a new, new college graduate when the film came out. Don't do any math, I just, I'm older. <laughs> Um, and it meant something to me uh, because visibility uh, for black women and black images and black love uh, was rare. And so this film, uh, I was able to see myself. So for me, it is a great honor to be here uh, with both Ted, the writer and director, and Melody Sutton, who alongside the late, great Pilar McCurry helped to put the music together. So please, let's welcome them in. All right. So I'm going to jump right into it. The opening sequence for me is a thing of beauty uh, for two, two reasons. One, because of the music. It starts out with what we just heard, Dionne Ferris, a hopeless, but that black and white sequence is one of the most gorgeous things I've ever seen. It gave me a feeling about um, Chicago that I didn't know because at that time I'd never visited. What side of Chicago or what slice of life of Chicago were you trying to give us, not just in that sequence, but in the film overall? Uh, I'm trying to remember where I got the where I got the idea for doing it that way. I'm sure I stole it from somebody, but I can't. I honestly can't. I honestly can't remember. Um, but that was Ernie Holzman, who was the director of photography on the movie. Shot all of that except for one shot. I I did, but all of that is his individual work. Uh, we were just prepping the movie in Chicago, and I sent him out really. And every weekend he would just go out with this little camera and I left him, left him to his own devices. But what we wound up doing in shaping it um, in editorially was it sort of starts with a, with a macro view, right? It starts with, you know, kind of cityscapes and slowly start, the, the idea was that it would slowly start to narrow in on, you know, the city and then the neighborhood and then the street and then the face, right? All the way down in. So that was the idea, was to kind of start large and, and gradually get small to regular, that this would be a movie about regular people. And then, of course, formally, the idea was that the, 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 the shots themselves would reflect her photography that you would see later on, at, uh, at, you know, in the movie. And so Melody McDaniel, also um, an incredible talent, uh, incredible photographer, uh, brilliant, um, she was out there with us when we were shooting some of the black and white stuff, and she would be shooting the corresponding still that I would that I knew I would use as a prop in the movie later on. So you will so that you would you would get a memory. You would like as the guys flipping the book. You've seen the movie as the guys flipping the book, right? With her pictures in it, you might get a memory of like, oh, I saw that. I saw the movie version of that, you know. And then at the end of the picture, we'll go back to black and white. So that was the idea. I've never seen an opening like that, and I wasn't sure. Sure, you was, have. No, no, well, I thought it was a flashback. I, no, 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 I stole it from, the, and now I can't remember. <laughs> I'm honestly, I can't remember where I got that from, but it's not. Where did I get that from? 
I'll think about it, and then I'll I'll text you, and then you can tell the audience. Shout out to whoever yeah, helped with that. Whatever, <laughs> whichever more brilliant director I stole that idea from. Whose decision was it to open with that song? Did you had you planned to open with that song when you when you envisioned the sequence? No, that came in a little bit later on. Okay. Um, I had Daryl Jones, who did the score, uh, had written a cue for that section mm. because the idea was it <clears throat> the conception of it changed. Uh, and this is the interface with the... <laughs> you know, I'm waiting, I'm this, waiting. Oh, I'll let you get in. <laughs> this, is, this is the interface with the record company. Uh, was a little challenging. Um, <laughs> the, the cons I had Daryl write a, a cue that was, that was my idea for it was that it would be a, very, a kind of gospel-influenced cue. So he wrote some chord, like some gospel kind of changes. And Kenny Garrett, who played alto in the on the score, blew over it. It was just piano and saxophone. Beautiful. It's a beautiful little two-minute section of music that he wrote. Because the I one of my ideas for it was that that section of the movie would be much like a the invocation part of a church service. You set the table for the sermon to follow, right? So I thought, well, let me just ride on that idea and really have like some music that would be for that audience, for, for this audience, very evocative of the beginning of a church service. Uh, and that, that that would be the black and white section, and then the movie would start. So, okay, well, so I had it all worked out in my head, but then, you know, the, the record company needed to have another track in the movie. And um, now, fortunately, um, we got, the, the day was saved because that was the track that they, that they sent, right? Beautiful song, um, uh, Hopeless. But that was not my original idea. But, you know, in the end, it worked out fine. But that was, but, it, it, but I, the reason why I was resistant to it was because it changed, not because I hated the song. The song's great. She's great. It's a great tune. That's actually Van Hunt wrote that tune. I don't know if you all know. Yeah. Along with you. Yeah, right. Yeah. Van Hunt wrote that. I'll get you another piece of anecdote before I let, I don't want to, I don't want to hog your whole, your whole vibe. Do you all know, uh, I was just telling, uh, I was just telling you, do you all know um, the drummer John Blackwell? Yeah. Prince's longtime drummer who just, he, in fact, he just passed recently, not long before Prince, I thought. That was, John told me that that was his first session. As a 20 whatever, when he first got called to do a studio session as a drummer, Hopeless was the very first job he got booked for. And uh, that's Randy Jackson playing bass. And he produced it. And uh, so anyway, so they sent over something great. But the but it, it my, I was resistant to it because it, you know, if I because it changed the, the idea of what the sequence meant in the context of the whole movie. So I was I, I pushed back a little bit, but uh, a little bit. <laughs> they threatened to sue me. So. No, I think. You just, we had to just gently persuade you about the power of the real estate of a good song for a soundtrack album. And you understood the need for a soundtrack album to drive the marketing for the project. So, I mean, you made us do our due diligence. We had to take a lot of time in um, 
pitching the project to artists and really getting them to understand how important the music was to the body of the film. And so that meant that we screened particular scenes, we gave them character studies so that they understood the motivations. And we were very lucky in working with Sony Music Soundtracks at the time because they had this really strong neo-soul roster that really spoke to the overall Right. We we had the luxury with this project because it was made at a time when there was really, well, I think there's never been really anything like it before or since. But at this time, in the course of, I guess you would call it contemporary Black soundtracks, it was really a really exciting creative piece. It was something that it was not very hard for us to sell to artists at all. Once we were able to either send them a synopsis or actually screen the project, everybody was full on on, on board. And that's not always the case. Like every director has a wish list where they want the Lauren Hills of the world and all of these great platinum artists, but rarely are those artists as interested in sitting down and writing a song for your movie. In this case, um, Maxwell, for instance, was like just starting to peak as this big platinum artist. And we were able to send him send him scenes from the picture and immediately like get a response. You know, I'm I'm sitting in my bathtub watching this on tour and I want to remix uh, something, something specifically for this. You guys can have it. You can do what you want to do with it. So it was like that way across the board. And in the case of the main title sequence, it really was about it had to be something that would convince this director to give up that prime real estate because for him, <laughs> for him, it was more so about does it serve my picture? Not about who the artist is, what the record company's marketing budget is. He didn't care about the fact that we could have video rights or any of that stuff. It was really about does this work? Does it fit what I want to say with the picture? And luckily for us, Dion Ferris and Van Hunt gave us something that worked perfectly. It fit the sentiment that he was going for, and it turned out to be this signature piece that really spoke to the film and gave it this timelessness. Yeah, lucky. Yeah, lucky. I mean, <clears throat> to be honest with you, I've actually never even said this. I didn't even really want a soundtrack. <laughs> Did I tell you? I've never told you this. I'll tell you why, and I'll tell you why. This was, this, I didn't want a soundtrack because I felt that was a convention of black movies that they were sticking me in that, uh, like, you know, the that same studio so would, the, the same studio would make, we made the movie at New Line in 96 or whatever, right? So the same studio would make a fairly generic romantic comedy, something like, like Bed of Roses or something, or something, just an average kind of movie. There's no soundtrack for that. There's a score, and so I thought, well, because I'm black, I gotta, I gotta have a, I gotta have some, some tunes or something like that. Like I got a whole conception for how the score is gonna sound. Right? So I, so I was, I really was angry about having to do it in the first place. To be honest with you. That's why you and, gave us such a hard time. Well, like, so once, once I saw the, once I saw the lay, of, and, and then the other thing is, it's not like I was making any money on it. So like, what, you know, there was no, there was no personal investment. I'm just in giving it. you a hard time, right? I so I thought, well, okay, 
once I saw the lay of the land and was like, well, we're going to do it, then we're going to do it. Your way. We're going to do it. And right. it's going to be, we're going to do it. it worked. It was. But we got very, I say this all the time, and I, I did an interview on, I say the same thing on YouTube, is that it, it, it's really incredibly fortunate that we wound up at the Columbia Records, just because I when you when you do the soundtrack, you interview all of the record companies. They all come to pitch you. And they're interviewing you at the same time. Right. Because it's a they they have to decide that they are comfortable with the project and they really right. want to put up a a budget for your record and to market it. Right. That's so right. it's like a mutual dance. Right. So they come in. And we, I went and met with them all, and they said, these are all the artists we have, and it's the type of record we can make. And really, the only, for the type of thing that I wanted to do, I didn't want to do a typical, for that time, R&B kind of thing. I didn't, I didn't want a cookie cutter. I didn't want anything cookie cutter about it. I didn't want even cookie cutter R&B. Uh, and it just so happened, at that time, there was this movement, we call it, now we look back, we call it neo-soul. A movement was afoot at that time. And most of those artists, or many of them, or a number of them, enough to make a record with, happened to be on Columbia Records. It was really just a right place, right time, right company. And then we sent the movie to these artists, and they all responded very, very positively. I was just I was telling them, I said, uh, you know, I, I had met with Lauren because the Fuji, we were prepping the movie in Chicago, and the Fugees, the, their record, the score was out and was becoming more and more massive, right? And uh, the Fugees had come through Chicago. They were on a mini high school tour before they were going out and doing their, like the main gigs, right? They, were, they literally did like a run of like half a dozen inner city high schools and played for kids. And so they came through and I went to Marshall High School and, uh, and sat with Lauren backstage and I wanted her in the movie. I wanted her to play Josie, the part that Lisa Nicole Carson, before I had hired Lisa. And she was like, I can't do it. This, this, the touring schedule is just going to, I'm on the road for like the next year or whatever. She couldn't do it. So flash forward, we're cutting the thing uh, and we're at Columbia. And I told them I wanted a Lauren Hill solo track. And then we sent the, do you remember this? We sent yes. the movie. We had a cut of the movie. We sent it to them. They were on tour. They watched it on the bus. And Lauren called back and was like, I have the perfect song for that. And that was, and she sent over that that sweetest thing. And that was right. That was it. It was it was finished. It was done. She was like, I have it in my back pocket. And she was like, this is the perfect song for this. And sent it over and gave it up. Yeah. I you don't do you remember like the political oh. backstory with that? I remember, I remember. It, was not that. it wasn't that simple? Was no. it more complicated? <laughs> All I know is I'm sitting in my office and I got a Lauren Hill's tape comes in and I put it in and I'm like, that's going in the movie. However, like Mr. Witchell said, please, this is me. As Mr. Witcher recalls, at the time it was the Fugees who were a part of this huge tour and pushing this platinum record. So there was no way that Sony was going to give us a Lauren Hill record. So I don't know how many of you actually have or are familiar with the actual soundtrack album, although it is Lauren Hill. The way that it's billed is the Refugee Camp All-Stars featuring Lauren Hill because <laughs> for uh, for political reasons 
we that was just how it had to be. So it was there was always is some type of story for is that, every. Is that why I could not get them to release that as, as the first a reading, single? Right, that among a lot of other things. Yes, it was just <laughs> this. This is all news to Ted right now. Man, that, you know, it, yeah, that they were like chapped a, my ass. I, I remember. Kidding. I I know. I I think that had a lot to do with like the fight about the main title as well, just because. Man, because I was we like, we couldn't get the leverage uh, on that is, at all. Uh, but we fought, and um, uh, the Macy Gray thing. So this is Pilar's genius. This is Pilar. Pilar got hired on this thing. I didn't even want. To do supervisor. a record. And so the studio goes, well, look, we're going to do a record. We have to get a music supervisor. This was Dana Sano at, uh, at, at New Line. Right. She's like, I got somebody for you. Because I, I was looking at some other, I had met somebody else who was, who was a famous music supervisor who I was kind of going to go with because he was recommended by a friend of mine. And Dana was like, no, 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 the, the, the person you want is Pilar. She's partnered with this guy, Happy. Right. <laughs> right. Happy. What's, what's Happy's last name? Happy Walters. Happy Walters. She's partnered with Happy Walters at this moment, but she's leaving him to start her own thing. We're going to snatch her. Yeah. And I was like, okay. So I went to have a meeting with Pilar and Happy. And, Happy, and Pilar didn't say anything in the meeting. She was his number two. And he was the whole meeting. And I was like, mm, I don't know. Right. But that chick, what's her story? Because she got crinkly hair and like she's, she looked like she could be in the movie. So what's... Exactly. You know what I mean? Like what's her, what's her deal? So... So she left Happy, started her own thing, and jumped on board as her, I think her first solo thing, was, maybe, early on, very was, early on. Yeah, it was one of the first. So she and I grabbed onto one another immediately. She goes, there's somebody you got to see. Um, and I go, who? She goes, nobody knows who she is. Her name is Macy Gray. She's playing at, um, at the Viper Room. Right. I'm going to take you. I'm like, okay, cool. I'm down for whatever. I go to the Viper Room. This is when Macy had a rock band. Okay, so there's this black chick fronting a rock band with that voice. And big bushy hair. And big, like the whole thing. <laughs> and she was not signed. And uh, we go to the Viper Room. It's me, Pilar, and maybe 12 other people. <laughs> and we're sitting there. And I'm sitting there going, well, I don't even know if she can sing. <laughs> but it's interesting. I want it. And she got involved with Macy, yes. and we had this song, I Try, okay? So, flash forward, it goes down, <laughs> I go to Columbia Records, I'm like, we gotta get the Macy Gray song on the record. And they told, uh, we went back and forth on this, and finally, somebody over there, who I won't mention, it was one of the guys, they snapped on me, and they were like, look, you need to stop calling me about this, there's no fucking way Macy Gray is gonna be on this record. So stop calling. And I was like, okay. So I put the song, I Try, in the movie. In the movie because I was free to do that. It's playing in the background yes. of the club. That song, that recording, not even a redo, that recording becomes a hit. She gets signed. Her record does three million. Um, where Geniuses. Did, where does she get signed? I don't know. I don't care. She got signed to Sony. Yeah, Columbia. she got signed to Sony. Right, right. She got, she was on Sony. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Geniuses. I had her before she. I had that song. It's a hit. You were ahead of your time uh, on that one. I don't know if I could. I don't know if if my sensibilities are right on the zeitgeist now. It probably wouldn't work. But at that moment, here in L.A., 
<laughs> I was, you know, I knew I saw where the thing was going yes. or where it should go and maybe where we could help nudge it go. Absolutely. So, but that makes, that, that's another thing that did, did oh man, that. <laughs> I mean, the, cho the, the choices here, the choices throughout the film <laughs> are great. And I wanted to go back to Laura. That was Pilar. Hill. That's Pilar. That is she Pilar. Like, you got to see this Macy Gray. Yeah, definitely. You got to see this Macy Gray. Definitely. She was right. She was right. We always talk about stone cold openers when you open a film or a television show and the hard close. And in the case of Love Jones, the hard close is the sweetest thing, right? Um, there was a hashtag on Twitter a couple weeks ago, best opening line. And in the top 10 has to be that song. The sweetest thing I've ever known is like a kiss really? on the collarbone. Oh That's one of the best opening I, lines. That, and I saw that tweeted a couple, that a couple song, times. That song, when that came in, that it went, I knew exactly where that was going, and it didn't move. Like yeah. we play, we play around with you know stuff as you know as you know, uh, move around stuff, try to try out different ideas. That song went right there. Was the first song after the movie was mm. over, and it never left. That was going to be my question. Who decided to to put it there? It was well, a did, mutual, but it, but it was obvious. It was yeah. yeah, it was a mutual kind of decision. Sure. It was really there was no other. I mean, no, no there was no other way. The just the I don't for me. Personally, there's this euphoria that I feel when I hear that song, and it just fit the vibe of this, you know, this roller coaster love story, and it just lyrically, it worked perfectly, and it was just the right kind of vibe. You, as, you know, as a music supervisor, you're always looking for, and something that resonates emotionally, and. There was just no better way to to get across what we were trying to do in terms of how we wanted you to feel walking out of the theater. I think when we all heard it, it was just like, I know for, for Pilar and I, we spent a lot of time, this was like pre-digital, you know, we had like, we'd have like our VHS and we'd play songs to picture in this rudimentary way. And we were so excited. We, this was when you were getting demos on DATs. Right. I had to buy a DAT machine. Right, exactly. Because right. when the exclusive things that we were getting where it was just, you know, directly from the studio, rough mix, we'd get it, we'd play it, and then either send it by messenger to Ted at the edit bay, but this was something where it was like right away we knew like this was the anchor piece, for sure. Any favorite uses in the film? I have to say one of my favorites because I'm self-indulged, but one of my favorites is, is Cassandra Wilson. Okay, you, well, you move Yes, on. that's... It's gorgeous. <laughs> so Cassandra, who I love and have loved, and we'll always love. So I'm in there, and I'm like, you know, the, the, uh, for, just as an aside, uh, so I went to New York to meet with these, you know, to have this meeting with these guys at some point as we were going back and forth, all this stuff. And it, this is the moment where I knew I was going to lose. I was going to lose every fight. The, 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 at the time, Sony was, at, uh, was, at, was in the 550 building. I don't know if you all work in the business, right? 550 Madison Avenue, right? It's the whole building. Right. Is Sony. So I get, I've never been there. So I get out of the car. They have sent a car for me. I get out of the car, pulls up in front of the Sony building. I get out of the car and I go like this. And I go, how much money does it cost just to heat this building for a day? And then when I ask myself that question, 
and thought about the answer to that, I realized that there was no way I was going to win any of these arguments because there's too much money at stake. They have the whole skyscraper the in whole Midtown building. Manhattan. <laughs> what do they care about me? I'm just a kid who made this movie. So the Cassandra thing. So I go, so as part of this, um, I go, we got to get Cassandra Wilson. And they, to their credit, they indulged me on this because this was not a big, massive pop play for them, right? And she wasn't even on the label. She was on Blue Note. So they, let, they indulged me on this one. And my original idea was Cassandra had done a guest shot on a record by a British jazz saxophonist named Courtney Pine. And he had been, exper- even though he was a jazz musician, he had been experimenting in the mid-90s with turntablism, right? Because he, you know, he's coming from the UK, right? So he's got like a lot of different kind of club, DJ type electronic influences. And they had done a Billie Holiday tune in this. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. Let me try that. So I said to Cassandra, I said, I would love for you to write a song and then I'm going to get Tricky to produce it. I like that, though. Right? right? <laughs> I like Tricky. Oh, well. oh I'm on it. Yeah. Oh, I'm on, I'm on the edge right here. Tricky, so, the British... Uh, the, trip-hop. Uh, the trip-hop artist, formerly of... He began his career in Massive so Attack, attack right. right? And then went solo. And uh, she wrote this song. So I'm in New York. She wrote the, the tune. One of my favorite memories from this whole experience was she had me up to her apartment in Harlem. Uh, the first time I'd actually been to Harlem. She lived way uptown, like 160-something in St. Nick, right? Way uptown. I'd never been up that far uptown. And, um, and uh, we sat in her apartment smoking cloves, and she played the demo on a dat. Had a dat on the, the demo of that tune. Uh, it's just her on piano sing- and singing it that she recorded in her apartment. And, I was, and she was like, hey, what do you think? I'm thinking about uh, blah, blah. I was like, don't change it. Don't change it. Don't change it. So... Comes time to figure out that the, I get tricky. He's into the idea. Great. We are getting tickets. We book him. Great. They're going to go to the studios in Mississippi. I'm here in LA. I get a call in the like middle of the night. It's Cassandra from the studio in Mississippi. She goes, Ted, uh, tricky never showed up. I'm like, what do you mean? He never showed up. We, we had him booked on him. He's like, he just never showed up. And I was like, so now what are we going to do? She goes, well, I got the fellas here, so we're just going to start cutting. I said, go ahead, cut it. So that's her. She produced it with her band and uh, sent that over. And I was like, ah, oh, this is amazing. And then she goes, it's almost done. I'm going to put finger snaps on it. And then I'm going to get Bob Belden to write some strings for it. And I was like, don't do that. Don't put the finger snaps on it. We're black people. We don't need to... We don't have to be told where the fucking beat is. We know where the beat is. She was like, nah, it's for the right. You got to put, I got to put the finger snaps on it. And I was like, and then, then she goes, I'm going to call Bob Belden and have him do some strings. And I'm like, don't syrupy the shit up. It's, it's fine the way it is. Just leave it spare. And she goes, no, he'll do something real tasteful. It'll be fine. So the version on the record has the finger snaps on the drum track. And has Bob Belden's very tasteful string arrangement. It's lovely. The version in the movie that I'm in control of, I took all that shit off. <laughs> so that's not on there. <laughs> but I love, I love that song. I love what Cassandra did with it. I, I love the song. It's beautiful. And then on the other stuff was I knew I had Sony in a trick bag because 
I wanted to have this. I wanted to have this. This. Uh, I wanted to have this John Coltrane, Duke Ellington thing on the, on the record, so that anybody who owned this record could not say that they did not have some jazz in their record collection. Well, that was going to be my question. How did you decide that that was the in a sentimental mood? Because it was right for the thing. And then the, other, the additional advantage was that they already owned the master, so they couldn't well, fight me. But see, this is one other thing that Mr. Witcher was not aware of. They did own the masters, but Mrs. Alice Coltrane was the signatory for Mr. Coltrane's estate. So we had to get her permission. Oh, I didn't know that. And I had to spend, um, as music coordinator, my role on this project was... I was responsible for researching um, all of the licensing parties for every song in the body of the film and on the soundtrack album, any kind of interpolations or clearances or any anything of that nature. And uh, a lot of times we um, there were a lot of things that we had to we reached out and got permission and clearance to use that didn't necessarily make the cut. But in this particular case, we we started the clearance process early because this was one of several songs that were written into the script. And um, there were also specific references to images, either photos of records or, um, yeah, photos of records, photos of liner notes, things along those lines that we also had to get cleared. So in this case, we um, we had to reach out to Mrs. Coltrane. We had to send her uh, the specific descriptions of the scenes and how the, the music was used. We had to get her blessing. And she wasn't necessarily inclined to allow her husband's music to be used in a feature film for what, what was what was the benefit to her. So we had to, um, you know, she's an artist in her own right, and she is a well-respected artist and is very well-versed in how the business works. So we had to assure her that this was not just some fluff kind of piece. It wasn't anything with gratuitous sex or violence. It was actually, you know, an homage or something that was respectful. And it took a while, but she gave us the permission to license the film, license the song for the film. And because we had that permission, it was easy for the record, and they do own the master. It's It was easy that to get one. the permission. That one and the Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra. Sure. Right. Jelly Jelly. Jelly Jelly. Yeah. And that gotcha. was another, no, that was <laughs> awesome. Gotcha. <laughs> Tell me no, you already own it. That was another situation where we had to use, we had to do extra clearance because with the Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra, that's union contracted musicians. We are an independent film with a very limited budget. And (laughs) can I ask about that? Can I ask what your your music budget was? Because I would ask Pilar, because Pilar was like, "I'm bringing my girl Mel on to do the clearances," and I was like, "Great, whatever." Like I don't, I don't even know what that is. Like. So, so, and then every time these conversations would go on, I would check in with Pilar, like, how are we doing on blah, blah, blah. And she's like, 
Mel's got it covered. Don't worry. Right. And, that, and Mel had it covered. I'm, I'm asking about the budget because when I saw the film, obviously I wasn't a music supervisor yet. I watched it again a couple nights ago with my calculator. <laughs> like, wait a minute. Well, we went, we went over on music. Yes, absolutely we, we did. We went, we went slightly over on music. You had some hits in there. We went slightly over on music, but but the studio was like, here's, they actually gave us some more money just to do the the music part because yes. they, they feel that's part of you know the selling. We were very fortunate with this particular project because everyone recognized and understood that the music was absolutely a character in the film and it was something that needed to be supported. So, um, and I think another thing that I wanna mention is that I think that the type of record deal that we had was also unprecedented because Love Jones was not part of the Sony family. Sony Soundtracks was a, an established in, entity already with things like Sleepless in Seattle, like huge money makers in the genre. They took a gamble on this little independent black movie. It wasn't necessarily something, it wasn't part of their roster. They already had chosen and had a rollout for the soundtracks that they were committed to. It was something where the head of soundtracks at the time, um, Glenn Brumman and his group really got behind the project. They really bought into Ted's vision and they put up a substantial budget. But it also, it was something where it was really kind of just pushing numbers around on paper because a majority of the acts were from their roster. They recognized that they had the artistry to support this. And once New Line saw the buzz that we were getting, because one of the other things that we did that I don't think was necessarily a regular practice at the time is Pilar is has always was always so ahead of her time and so creative about the way that she would take on a project and market it to the music peers in the industry. So she would get New Line to host artist screenings and we would do these things. Normally a film in post-production is under lock and key. You can't get it off the lot, let alone take a, a film, a copy of a film that's in post editorial to Sony soundtracks and screen it for the Fugees of the world, the Maxwells. And we would do these really kind of exclusive get togethers where we had the tastemakers take a look at this project and it became this kind of jockeying thing where we were getting things from all over the place. It was like, for me, it was such a rewarding experience because we're fielding calls and I'm talking to icons that I love about this project and we're getting great feedback. I had creative conversations with Cassandra Wilson about like where we wanted her to particularly place her song. Just It was just something where it was this creative kind of work of art, like a labor of love for everybody involved. We were talking a little bit earlier about Ted was mentioning he just didn't want a straight-ahead R&B soundtrack, and this is a lot of things, but it is not that. The soundtrack to this film feels like score. It's moody, it's intimate, it's like Pilar took your movie, put a blanket around it, and said you can relax. It feels like a friend, and it's you have a club called The Sanctuary. You've got a love letter to Chicago, you've got rain, you've got moodiness, and you never thought for a minute, what's that song, what's that song, because it moved. The movie and the soundtrack worked together perfectly. The choices were, were elegant, um, they didn't take you out of the film. One of my favorite uses also, and I was 
was going to ask you about in a sentimental mood. Was that the early decision for that to be playing in the record store, for that to be Darius's? That was scripted. You wrote okay. that in the script. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, that was scripted. Yeah. Okay. Did you have to clear that? Because yes. I remember the record store... Did you have to clear the other albums that were showing? Did you have to? Oh, that's a good question. Yes. Because yeah. juke, really? juke Joint is, you can see the. the All of the, the images, yeah. we yeah, had yeah, to get. Yeah, you can see Juke Joint. We, we had to get licenses for the visual, uh, the visual album so covers. Also. <laughs> yeah, I was curious yes. about that because there were some hits uh, showing in the record store, but I saw the, the, the cues, Juke Joint. That was one of the first things I saw. In the stacks. It's a different clearance, though. It's not the same as like a, you know, a sync license, but you do have to get permission to use those images as well. M P Pilar would just tell me that Mel's got it covered. I think that's because she knew that she trained me well. I was absolutely her protege from the beginning. She taught me everything that I know about music supervision. My very first jobs working in film music were due to Pilar. I started as an intern at RCA Records and from there, um, I think maybe two summers into college, I got a call from Pilar, um, Mel, I'm working on this film project and I need assist an assistant and my mom reminded me that you worked at a record label, come talk to me. And and that's how it started. I And that project was this movie called Sugar Hill starring Wesley Snipes. And just, a, just as a testimony to her brilliance, she started on that project as the music coordinator. She was the assistant. So the music coordinator is the right hand to the music supervisor. You handle clearance. You assist them just with every aspect. You can be helping them with temp score, with song selection. It depends. And she was just so strong in her role that and I think it was also a very music-heavy project that she received co-supervisor credit on Sugar Hill. And from there, she ended up working with Happy Walters at Sidewinder and went on to supervise easily over 20 projects. And um, I went back to school. Uh, I'm a was a journalism and marketing major, so I was working in billboard advertising and absolutely hated my job. And I'm, it, I was like circulating my resume and Pilar was on my resume. Someone called her and so she called me like, Mel, you're looking for work? Look, I'm leaving happy, I'm starting my own company and I need you to come work with me. What are you doing right now? Come meet with me. And so I left my advertising position that I hated, like as a marketing assistant, and she literally had three projects. Her first three projects that she was working on, Love Jones, Set It Off, and Gridlock, which is one of Tupac's last films. So it was just like trial by fire. It was an amazing experience. I learned music clearance, I mean, it was, she empowered me every step of the way. I was, I mean, usually in a coordinator position, you don't necessarily have to be as hands-on as the supervisor. She took me every place with her, scoring sessions, executive meetings, and she empowered me to voice my opinion. She valued my opinion, and she just was amazing to work with. What, what I found was, because 
I didn't, you know, this is my first movie, right? So I didn't really know what a music supervisor did. I was just told that I had to have one, right? So I'm like, okay, well, I, okay, I'll figure out how to work with this person or whatever they do. But what I found was with her, and I don't even know if this works with everybody, but with her, she could have her hands in any pie and I would actually give her more pies to put her hands in. Right? Absolutely. It just, her influence on the, her interaction with me just expanded, continued to expand. Right. When we were prepping the movie, you know, I had found this reggae band to do this, to do that tune. Another. Uh, and I had to clear that too. Well, another, right. it's, it's, it's actually another, it's, a, it's another kind of disappointment of mine that that song is not on the record. On the record. It's actually very no difficult way. to find. Um, nope. No way. That there was, was no, no way. way that was going to happen. But so we had to do that as a pre-record. Obviously we we're going to shoot that to playback. And she came, flew into Chicago, and I had, I was just going to produce the session myself. Like, it was not a big deal to me. We were just going to just record them in a studio. It wasn't like a, a heavy thing. And I specifically wanted to record it live, more or less. She came in. And, and tells you of, that and, you uh, don't do that. Well, it's not that <laughs> she tried to push, you know, this is where, okay, you try and push back on Ted. But what she did was, she came in, she had booked a studio, um, and she kind of supervised the set. Like, my, my point is not that there was a, is not to say that there was a conflict between us. My point is to say that she, this was the first time where I was like, oh, she's getting her hands in this. Okay, well, she seems like she knows what she's doing. Let's see if I, I can get her to have her hands in this. And by the end of it, I could have her do, contribute in any number of ways. She was sending me tapes and sending me ideas. Right. I got stacks and stacks and stacks of ideas and tapes and I got a problem here that I need to solve. Can you give me 20 ideas? And 20 ideas would show up. The, the three, three, weeks before, three weeks before she died, she and I are texting about Ravel. And which, can I get, you know, uh, a, a clearance for this, uh, for this Ravel piece that I want to use in the next film? We were talking about that. Her, her interest level was vast. Absolutely. And her taste level was high. Absolutely. And so I, as our relationship developed, uh, I began to trust her more and more to get into my creative soup as deeply as she wanted to get. And I did not let any, just anybody into that, into that space. But her, I trusted. So yeah, absolutely. she taught me what a music supervisor did. Amen. Which, you know, which makes it, the, the, you know, this particular occasion... Uh, you know, incredibly sad. Like, I, I wish we were not meeting under these circumstances. But Agreed. Yes, absolutely. So the other thing I'll, I'll mention, I'll give you, can I give you, I'll give you sure. the Prince story. Yes. Were, were you, were you the one trying to get, the, you were, you were tasked with this, right? Yes. I had, I, I, had, oh my God. I had cut, I had cut this scene that I won't mention because there's another song there now. Um, I had cut this particular scene in the movie to a Prince song. I had to have this song. And so I, and you know, if I was, you know, I'm a first time director, I don't know anybody, I can't get a hold of Prince personally. So I have to rely on the people around me. So I tasked Pilar with getting a hold of Prince and I guess she tasked you. I had to fax right. Hazley Park. Right, to and get this song clear. Th they don't answer anybody. No answer. And we have, we had, I mean, as a music supervisor, it's all about your relationships. You, you cultivate relationships, especially on the publishing and clearance side. There 
are only a handful of people that you're going to deal with. You're going to deal with them on a regular basis. So at the time, um, there was this one particular person at Warner Chapel Music Publishing, and <laughs> utter. Yep. Every. Uh, <laughs> we all know. Right. <laughs> so, um, Pilar was Pilar's was very meticulous. So we had our own. Um, I think it was like maybe three times a week we would go over just the schedule of clearances. So we have the spreadsheet and it indicates the master licensor, the publishing, each party, like I'm, I'm giving her an update. And just day after day after day, it's like, I, there, I don't have anything to report. Yes, I've, I've called, I've left messages. I don't, I don't know what else to tell you. And <laughs> It was the bane of my existence. That Down to the dubstep. Not, I was on there, the, I was there on the was, dubstep. There was that. There were there were several songs though, Mr. Witcher, if I recall. There was there was some Isley Brothers material. Right, sure. There um I can't quite remember. The Isley Brothers though and that Prince, that was like that was very difficult. Just right. there Prince was no was way. That, that was a that was a loss, because that would have been nice to have. And then we just never received an answer. Right, we never, never it wasn't ever. a no. It was, we never got a hold of it. We just never, and it wasn't for lack of trying, I yeah, mean, they, they, they I know did. Try. I know y'all try. You know, I ran into Prince years later, <laughs> and he's a bit, he was a big fan. Of the movie, I yeah, am. I've heard that. I, that's one of, I've never ever had the pleasure of meeting him. I've been a lifelong fan, so I heard, I mean, I know that there were several, several people that I met later who turned out to be fans. I think that this is like one of, we were talking about this earlier, it's just one of the high points of my career. It's been a creative like calling card. It's something that like I can look at back with pride and it's also been like kind of offered me carte blanche in terms of other creative projects. So I'm very proud. You know, we're sad, I couldn't get, we couldn't get Sade either. Yeah, it was. Ooh, yeah, that was something Sony. else. Sade too, I, because I the, <laughs> here, well, this, this, is, this wasn't on them. This was on Sade, because you know, because you know Sade. Right? But what so, you got? Sade goes on break. She goes on. She breaks. <laughs> and they they told me they told me I was so mad when she did that song for uh, Wrinkle in Time. I was so right. mad. You know what? But they told I know me, that like, Pilar. I said, I said I in, know. The, in the first meeting, I was like, "Yo, we're Sony, right? We have to get Sade." And they said unequ unequivocally. Sade's on a break, because um, she had done Love, Love, uh, Love Deluxe was the last one before, right, she, she was in the middle of her sabbatical. And I was like, they were like, no, you don't understand, we can't, she's, she's out. And I said, you can't get a song, she can't go into the studio and cut one track for this. And they were like, you don't understand Sade. Sade says, don't call us, and we don't call, and we wait for her, to, and, and literally that break lasted another five years, or right. like another three years, until Love Deluxe, or whatever the, whatever the next, Lover's but Rock. But you know what they the next, did deliver? The next record was. What they delivered was 
and I don't know if you remember this, the Sade connection was Maxwell because Maxwell was produced by Stuart Matthewman and the backing group behind Sade. So we we did somewhat we did Sweetwater. Well something something sweet back. in there also in Ascension. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. We wanna thank uh, our guests for Giving us so much backstory on the music. Oh, we could go on. We go on and on. Love Jones. To the break of dawn. We just want to recognize Pilar and just a few quick thoughts about her. Um, What is music supervision? When done well, it is mastery at managing musical moments. Pilar McCurry surely did that. Uh, She understood the preciousness of cultural touchstones, whether that meant dropping in Parliament's flashlight at the beginning of Set It Off, uh, Papa Was a Rolling Stone and Proud Mary, or Curtis Mayfield, Give Me Your Love and Love Jones. She knew black folks and black music. She knew our jams. In the same way that John Hughes soundtracks are teen angst set against 80s punk, this was a love letter to Neo Soul, perfectly curated by Pilar McCurry, Jonathan McHugh, and also our guest, Melody Sutton. A meticulously chosen list of hits that when considered makes my top 10 soundtracks of all time whenever I have the honor of being asked. If you recall, those who have seen the movie, towards the end of the film, Nia reads a dedication that Darius has written in the beginning of his book, Gypsy Eyes. It says, to the woman who helped me reach my level, she knows who she is. One of the women that helped me reach my level is Pilar McCurry. I never got a chance to meet her or thank her for blazing that trail and for her mastery of managing this musical moment that I won't forget, a thing of beauty called the Love Jones soundtrack for a gorgeous film written and directed by Teddy Witcher. Thank you so much, Taylor. If I, if I may, if I may, my, my regret to follow on with that, um, um, and thank you for that, was that um, there's something, and maybe you all, as music supervisors or in the guild, can deal with this in some kind of way, but when we were doing the credits, uh, because in this film I had put the credits at the end of the film, and so all of the usual the credit requirements, all they all went backwards, right? My name came first, as opposed to last, as it would, then the producers and the actors, whatever. So I got into a real scuffle about her card um, because she had a precedent in her deal of having a single card in the main titles, which I thought was, would I would just run that backwards. And the DGA would not approve it. Um, they made me... And I had a screaming match with the DGA. They made me put her in the crawl because the DGA requirements are that the unit manager, the first AD unit manager, that card, and then everybody else. And they would not let me put the music supervisor's credit before that in the end of the, and I yelled at them and I said, I had, was very embarrassed. I had to say to her, I'm sorry, but I have to, even though you have a precedent for this and you, your name has appeared this way before, I have to put you in the crawl as opposed to an individual uh, main title card. So I don't know, you all, as you go, go forward and make your deals, uh, maybe that's something you, you might want to pay attention to, but it's, I, it's actually yeah. a, a great regret of mine. It's something that, where uh, you have to petition the DGA. Yeah, I have to, I'll, I'll work on that, but, but she should have been credited on a single card in the main titles along with the costume designer and and everybody else, such was her contribution to the film. So, my friend. Without further ado, Love Jones.